and welcome to the Christian Information Podcast. I'm Raven, and I'm here with Andrew, one of our pastors at Providence Church, and Debbie Blank, Bible teacher and president of Living Word Ministries. The goal of this podcast is to form disciples to live all of life with the presence of God, and we do this through conversations about theology, culture, and stories. Today, we're discussing a literal view of Israel and the church. Hey everyone, welcome back. Today on the Christian Formation podcast, we are bringing on a guest, Debbie Blank, who is the president of Living Word Ministries. And she has a view that would be a little bit different from Andrew and I's personal view on how to read the Old Testament. As you all know, the last 20 or so episodes, we've been giving a framework for how to read and interpret Old Testament scripture. But today we wanted to bring on Debbie to give an opposing viewpoint or opposing framework for how she would read the Old Testament. Ultimately, we want you all to take what you hear, talk about it in your community, and then pray about it and read through scripture yourself to find your own framework. We also have an episode coming out next week that gives you a deep dive into why it's important on having your own framework as you read the Old Testament. But we hope you enjoy this, that you're able to think critically, and ultimately that God gives you a deeper understanding of who he is. Debbie, thank you for being here. Thank you. I'm blessed to be here. I'm grateful that you invited me. Yeah. For the last couple of months, we've focused on the Old Testament, how to read it, how to better understand it, and how to think through tough questions that arise. And this episode is going to discuss one of those common questions. But before we get there, Debbie, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do? We have Debbie Blank with us here today. Thank you. It's a blessing again to be here. I was born and raised in Omaha. I've been married for 51 years. We have two sons, two daughters-in-law, and two wonderful grandchildren. Everyone lives in Omaha, so we are truly blessed with that. I came to know the Lord after we were married, as did my husband. So it's been uh, quite a long journey, and I've loved every minute of it. We uh, raised our kids. I was a stay-at-home mom, but as my kids will say, I was never at home because I was always active in the community and then active in church things when I became a believer. So God had called me from the early days of salvation to teach. I didn't know that at the time. All I knew is that I needed to get into the Word. I needed to know this God that I I thought I knew growing up with my religion, but really turned out that I didn't know anything about the Bible. So I just started digging into the Bible, and the more I dug, the more I started teaching, and people asked me to teach. So I've been teaching for over 40 years now, speaking and teaching and doing retreats and things like that. We started a radio ministry 20-plus years ago here in Omaha. It's expanded now throughout the state of Nebraska, as well as to other parts of the country, and for a while internationally. We also host and lead tours to Israel, just coming back from our 13th trip to Israel. And I'm also an author. I've authored three books on Bible prophecy. I love what I do. I love the Lord. And it's exciting to continue to serve him. That's awesome. I love that. So yeah, Debbie, you're very well versed in the Old Testament specifically, I would say. And that happened really when we first went to Israel. Oh, gosh, almost 30 years ago. I learned so much from that trip. 
I, like most people, had focused on the New Testament rather than the Old Testament because it's easier and it's about Jesus, and the Old Testament can be really hard to understand. But after going to Israel, my passion for understanding the Old Testament, God's plan for Israel, was just paramount in my life. So I really spent a lot of time learning about the whole of the Bible, not just the New Testament. Debbie, could you give a little more thoughts on that, actually? Because so this whole fall, we've been going through different elements of the Old Testament, trying to help people get a little bit better grasp on the Old Testament, hopefully build a little bit more excitement around the Old Testament. Like you said, it can be kind of a foreign land and place and names and people and even the writing styles, all of that makes it hard sometimes to jump in. So we've been trying to help people with that. Could you give a couple thoughts on why you think it's so important for Christians to know and read the Old Testament as our kind of whole series these last few months is coming to an end? What would you say to encourage maybe young Christians or Christians who don't usually get into the Old Testament on why they should? The Old Testament is the foundation of what we believe. Everything in the Old Testament is foundational for the New Testament. In addition to that, from the very third chapter in Genesis, when sin came into the world and God promised a redeemer for that sin, everything about the Old Testament is interwoven with that red thread, I call it, of Jesus Christ, of who the Messiah will be, what he will do, what he will be like. Even stories like Abraham, when he was going to sacrifice Isaac, his only begotten son, whom he loved. And you think, well, that's interesting. And you take it for face value. But when you get to the New Testament, you find out that that sacrifice or attempted sacrifice is an example of Jesus Christ how he was a copy, as I say, an example of what Jesus Christ would do for us, that he would give his life for us because he loved us, and that God would send his only son to give his life because he loved us. So the importance of the Old Testament cannot be misunderstood because everything in it points to Jesus. Yeah, that's so true that it really is. I mean, it is the foundation. It's hard to understand truly what Jesus is doing in his life as you read it in the Gospels without knowing the Old Testament. Like you said, so many of the references throughout the letters, they're just pulling from Old Testament truths about God or things that are happening and they're bringing them into the context that they're writing in. And so I do think to understand the New Testament and even Jesus himself, we do have to know the Old Testament. But one of the main questions that continues to come up for people is I'm reading these stories about certain people or a whole people like Israel thousands of years ago. And then I get to the new Testament. I'm reading the story about Jesus and then Paul and Peter and John and they're writing, you know, letters to those churches, but how does all that stuff fit? And then how does any of that stuff apply today? So I think when we're looking specifically at the old Testament, Debbie, could you maybe help give even just a couple of the, you know, classic or main views on How do we understand the relationship between the Old Testament or Israel specifically and then the New Testament? And then maybe after that, we can start to move into, okay, then how does that actually apply to us today? But I know there's a few different main views. Could you give just quick overviews of what the different views are when we look at how do we make sense of the Old Testament's connection to the New Testament? Let me share what most people believe. They fall into three categories. One is a covenant theology, often called Reformed theology. And that is that the church is now spiritual Israel because Israel rejected God when he came. So it's a continuation. The church is a continuation of the Old Testament people of God. The philosophy then makes the Israelites and the church one people, not two separate 
entities. Uh, and then that means that Israel is interpreted in different ways throughout Scripture because it's a different entity now. It's one with the church. So things can be taken literally or they could be spiritualized or they could be allegorized any different way like that about Israel in the Old Testament or future prophecies about Israel in the New Testament. That's covenant theology that the church has become a spiritual Israel. And then there's replacement theology, which is that the church has replaced Israel in God's paradigm. Israel's gone. Nothing left in the nation of Israel anymore in God's paradigm because they rejected Christ. So they are no longer God's chosen people. The church has become his bride, and the church is all that we're focused on. Those people, Jews or Gentiles, who would accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, are then one entity, and that is the church. Now, again, there is a problem if you take the Bible literally, because God has made several promises and prophecies to the Jewish people that haven't been fulfilled yet. And he's actually made several prophecies that have been fulfilled in our lifetimes and many more that still are yet to be fulfilled. So there's an issue there with the replacement theology. Then you have dispensationalism. Dispensationalism really believes three main tenets. One is the literal interpretation of the Bible. The other two don't necessarily believe in the literal interpretation and more of a, again, allegorical or spiritual kind of interpretation. Uh, The dispensationalists also believe that Israel and the church are distinct entities, totally separate from each other. And then finally, you have a belief that the whole of history is divided into seven dispensations or seven administrations based on the covenants that God gave the Jews. And some of those deal without the Israel or the church because it was before them. Some of them deal with Israel. Some of those dispensations deal with the church but they don't all deal with one entity. So there's issues with all three of them. There's positives with all three of them, but you have to read the scripture to figure out what it is that God is showing you the truth is. It's so funny hearing all of those because growing up, I just kind of believed whatever my parents believed. And then now they've kind of shifted their views or they've changed a little bit. And I was like, hey, wait, you didn't tell me. But I think what you just said is so key that we need to read the scripture and figure it out for ourselves because, yeah, I just realized, oh, man, I've been kind of doing what my parents have done for a while or believed what they believed. And so then when they kind of shifted their view and changed as they read scripture, it was funny for me because I was like, oh, wait a second. I don't know what I believe. So, Well, that happens a lot where mm-hmm. we grow up with a whether it's a religious belief or a parental belief. That's all we know. That's what we're taught. So that's why it's important to get into the Bible. Again, when I first started studying the Old Testament, I didn't know an awful lot because we hadn't been taught it. But as we read it and as we learn, then we grow to understand God's purpose for the Jews and God's purpose for the church. And while I think that there's a time when they're distinct, I also believe that there's a time when the two of them come together. For example, right now in the New Testament age, it's clear from the books of Galatians and Ephesians that If we believe in Jesus Christ, no matter if we're Jew or Gentile, we are one body. We come together as one. We're distinct. So there's no separation of Jew and Gentile. It's one body in the church, Jesus Christ. And yet, I believe also, because I take the Bible literally, that the prophecies that God made to his people are yet to be fulfilled, which means that God's going to deal specifically with with the Jews at a later point in this paradigm, in the times that we live. 
Okay, so a couple questions on some of that. One is, you just mentioned there are some places like Galatians and Ephesians where we see the two united and some where we're still waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled through Israel. Is that right? Yes. Okay, so could you help people see from that viewpoint, how do we know where is it united and where are we still waiting for it to specifically only be through the nation or the ethnic people of Israel. Okay, let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 2. And then again, you can go to Galatians 3 if you want. Here it says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's talking about Gentiles. He says, For he himself, that's Jesus Christ, is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Right there, we're told that both groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, have now become one. Throughout the whole Old Testament, they're separate. Jews and Gentiles are two distinct groups. Verse 15 says, By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So that's just one place that God says the Old Testament, meaning the Jews and the New Testament Gentiles, are brought together in one body. We know that's the church. The church is never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's a mystery. But we see that because the Jews rejected Christ, they we as Gentiles have been grafted in to the Old Testament promises that God made regarding salvation through Jesus Christ or through the Messiah that we know to be Jesus Christ. You can read about that in Romans 11. The grafted in is extremely important because we are grafted into the rich olive tree, the roots of Judaism. The, that's why we call things the Judeo-Christian ethic because that's the foundation of what we believe, and we're grafted into those promises. Those are spiritual promises regarding the relationship with God. But when you look at other promises, for example, God promised the Jews that he would reign with them in his kingdom on earth. That's why they missed the Messiah, because that's what they were looking for instead of a saving Messiah. Well, that hasn't happened yet. So it's still future to happen. So with the Ephesians passage that you read, can you go back to and just help explain? So that one says that the Jews and Gentiles brought together as one people to live together, which is part of the problem in Galatians for Peter, because there's certain issues still where he's pulling back and there's this unity that he's missing. And so Paul encourages him, no, like we are united now in Christ. So if we are supposed to be unified, living life together under Christ, but then there is a time where that will end that like unity there is is that right to where you're saying at some point that won't be primary anymore and god will primarily go back to just working through israel yes is that right in romans eleven twenty five, it says for i don't want you brethren to be uninformed of this mystery lest you be wise in your own estimation now that's important because mystery is mysterion in the greek it's something we don't know or we didn't know before and because of that the church is a mystery. It wasn't mentioned in the Old Testament, as I said earlier. And so right now, what we see about the church in Israel is a mystery. So he says, this is a mystery. It goes on to say, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then all Israel will be saved. So when the fullness of the Gentiles comes into the kingdom of God, then, only then, 
will all Israel be saved? Right now you have some Jews that are Messianic Jews who believed in the Messiah, but not very many. Over in Israel, there's maybe 15,000 Messianic Jews. Worldwide, there's maybe 100,000, not a lot. So there's been a partial hardening of the Jews until the church age is over. Now, because I take Scripture literally, I believe in the prophecies of Scripture, the future prophecies. So I believe the church age will end when the rapture of the church takes place, where God will remove the church so that he can usher in his final seven years of wrath upon this earth, first wrath upon those who have not believed in Jesus as the Messiah, but also the opportunity for Jews and Gentiles to have one final opportunity to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior before he returns. So with the literal interpretation, I just have a question on that too, because obviously, like you said, that's been a key piece of kind of the argument or the understanding. Would you say that you take... I mean, all, so you said, because you take all scripture, literally, how would you say, like in some of the Psalms or some of the other places where we kind of have poetic language, where they're, you know, considering and meditating on the beauty of God and they give us all these languages and images, how do we make sense of that in terms of a literal approach to all of scripture? Well, let me start by explaining my literal approach. I take everything as what God says for his word. So when he says he created the world in seven days or six days, technically, I believe that. And of course, it helps when you know the Hebrew language, which whenever they have a, a one or a first in front of the word day, it's literally 24-hour period of time. But I believe it because the Bible says so. And in that case, we've got a New Testament reference where Jesus uses that as an example of how he's going to be in the ground for three days. So every place that I've found in Scripture it either explains what it means or it does later. Now, clearly we have poetry and Psalms, for example, is poetry. So you have to take poetry at its understanding of somebody looking at something with a poetic sense or an allegorical sense. And you have to understand the literary style by which it's written. Most of the Old Testament is written as history or prophets, but you do have five books that are poetry books. So you have to read and understand those. Some people will say, do you really believe Job lost his children and all that he, all of his wealth? And I, I do. God used that as a teaching time for us, for Job first, but also for us to learn that we need to trust God in everything. And we need to know that he has our best interests in mind and what he wants us to learn and grow. So I take all of those poetic things, those five books of the Bible that are poetic, I take them as literal when I can. And when it's uh, literary, I have to recognize there's literary styles in there too that need to be considered when we're looking at scripture. So I was trained in seminary within a covenant theology framework, which I don't a hundred percent hold to, you know, anymore, but that was kind of my background in a lot of this stuff with old Testament, new Testament, how to understand it. So that's impacted quite a bit of where I personally land us as a church. We don't really take like a, a firm, like we have to believe this type of stance, but so I'll just speak for myself. That's close to where I'm at. Although similarly to what you're saying, I don't think it, I fit totally in that, you know, mm -hmm. category. But let me give you kind of what, a little bit of what I've been trained in and where I'm mostly at now. And I'd love to hear just thoughts on kind of what you mentioned before, like either a critique or where you'd see a hole in this. 
so my understanding within the covenant theology framework is that part of the purpose of Israel is for them to be his people on earth. And also when they receive the covenant of, of God in multiple different facets, whether that be, you know, within covenant theology, there's the overall covenant of grace, but then the different iterations of that through Noah and Moses and Abraham and David, and then the new covenant, obviously, but all of the blessings for obedience and all of the curses for disobedience that were given to Israel, that they obviously didn't obey, they fall into disobedience, get into exile, that when Christ comes, that he is the fulfillment of what Israel was planned or purposed to be. And so in Christ's coming, he opens up all the blessings of the covenant. He takes on the cross, all the curses of the covenant for disobedience, and then the church age or like from him on it is people being grafted into not merely Israel, but grafted into Christ as the one true Israel who now all things are found under Christ, which then I think the argument would then be all of the promises and prophecies to Israel are ultimately found in fulfillment of Christ. And now our belonging or our union to Christ grafts us in as one people, like Ephesians 2 mentioned, but they would say forever. Like that is now the plan and purpose and work of God is through Christ and his people. So what would be the the critique or how you would want to either nuance that or correct that view of simply saying Christ is the fulfillment of all things, Old Testament, all things Israel, and we're simply grafted in, not primarily to Israel, but grafted into Christ. And therefore, now there's one people under Christ forever. I would agree with most of what you just said. Christ is the crux. He's the cornerstone of everything that they believed in the Old Testament, looking forward to the Messiah, and everything that we believe now. He is the fulfillment in that his life and death, the gospel message, saved mankind, Jews and Gentiles alike, forever. So I would agree with all, almost all of that. Where we would differ is a literal interpretation of Scripture in that I see many prophecies in Scripture that God made to Israel, many promises that have not yet been fulfilled and that can't be fulfilled to the church. For example, when God promised Israel the land, they never owned all of the land that God promised in Genesis 15. That means it's still future to happen. And yet there's no reason for the church to own the land of Israel. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Now, I understand from your philosophy that it's that Christ fulfilled that and the land is no longer necessary in that idea. But then you have to simply look at what's happened in the last over 70 years with the nation of Israel. As we look at the prophecies of Ezekiel 36 and 37, and even 38 and 39 that haven't happened yet, but we see God promising that Israel is going to go back in their land. We see from Isaiah 11, 11, where God promised that Israel would go back to their land twice. And they did twice, once after the Babylonian conquest and then once in 1948. When we see prophecies that God made about the future for Israel in the Old Testament that have been fulfilled already just in the last 70 years, we have to say, well, there's There's something unique about the Bible when God's talking about these prophecies. It's not just a fluke. It's not just a, well, they're a nation now and we're going by human terms that they should be a nation and they should do this and that and the other thing. They're answers to God's prophecies. As I say in my latest book, there's 40 prophecies that have been fulfilled 
that show that Jesus Christ is coming soon. Just 40 prophecies in our lifetime. No generation has ever seen that except the generation at the time of the first coming of Christ. And most of those prophecies deal with the people and the land of Israel. So that's where we differ, really, is that while Christ fulfilled everything at the cross for a relationship with him, God still has promises that he needs to fulfill with Israel. Or he's not a covenant-keeping God if he's going to break those promises. But as you say, you believe the church is the fulfillment of that. So that's really where we would disagree. But it's a difference of interpretation of the scriptures. So what would you say, within that framework, what should Christians' hearts or minds be toward Israel today with an understanding of a future place and promise and purpose for them yet to be fulfilled? How should we view Israel? Is there any action or heart motives or anything like that that the church should have towards Israel, would you say? Well, first of all, as I mentioned before, most Jews do not accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They have not done that. So we need to pray for them. We need to pray that their hearts will be open, because they will. According to the passage in Romans 11, all Israel will be saved at some particular time in history. According to Zechariah, that's going to be at the end when Jesus Christ returns to this earth. The point being is we need to pray for them, pray for their heart. That's number one. Number two, we need to remember they are still God's chosen people. You know, whether we're Jews and Gentiles grafted into the church, whether we're one body together, Israel was called God's chosen people, and that's never changed. God never rescinded that statement or his treatment of the Jews. So we need to respect them. God tells us in the covenant with he made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And I have found over and over again in my life, in our country, with other people, that when we bless the Jews, when we love them as God loves them, he will honor what we're doing. So I think we need to support Israel as a people. I don't mean we give them money or we do anything for the nation. Uh, We certainly treat the Palestinians the same way we treat the Israelis when it comes to loving God's people, because we're all God's people. But when it comes to supporting Israel as a nation, as, a, as God's chosen people and as God's plan for the future, I believe it's our responsibility as the church to do that, just as it would be to support anyone, but especially God's chosen people. They're still there. Even though they've rejected him, he has not rejected them. And I'm so glad for that, because when I sin and make a mistake, God hasn't rejected me either. For people who are in a similar circumstance to me or who are just trying to figure out, okay, what do I believe about Israel and the church? What would your encouragement be to them? Go to the scriptures. That's where I learned about the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, the God of the church. That's where I came to know and understand everything I believe because the Holy Spirit is our teacher. So if we go to God with the intent of learning what he wants us to know from the word of God, he will give it to us. Thank you for joining us today. The goal of the Christian Formation Podcast is to live all of life with the presence of God, and we do this through conversations about theology, culture, and stories. Please like this, rate it, review it, share it so that it can get out to more people. If you have any questions, email us at formation at providenceomaha.org. We'll see you next week.